Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for even creating us in the first place. You certainly didn't have to do that. And then when we fell and came short of your glory, you sent your Son, your only Son, to redeem us and to buy us back. We are yours twice over. Help us to never forget that we are not our own, but that we are yours. And as we go through our study this week and weekend, Lord, let our time be fruitful. And Lord, help us to learn not only how to be more faithful to you, but Lord, how to be more useful for your cause. Teach us how to proclaim your marvelous light, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please turn to the book of Luke. We're going to begin with Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, setting the stage for our study. And I'm going to give you an outline as you look up Luke chapter 11 of all that we're going to be covering this weekend. My goal is to be not so much a preacher as a teacher, even though I love preaching and I, and I hope to be engaging, I hope you're interested in the topic, but most significantly, I want you to be grounded in the Word of God and see something clear, something perhaps new, but not seeking to be original, but seeking to be uh, forceful. And more than information, hopefully the Lord through His Holy Spirit will give us a transformation of mind so that we can have the right vision for what the Lord is calling us to do. I believe very sincerely that when Jesus prayed this model prayer that's found in Luke chapter 11, that he wasn't being poetic, that he wasn't being just using grand oratory. Of course, it's a beautiful prayer. We all know it. But I want to look at the specifics of it, one particular aspect of it that's going to set this course for the whole weekend. Luke chapter 11. Now it came to pass, verse 1. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place when he had ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, verse 2, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth, how? As it is in heaven. That's the entirety of the prayer we're going to read for right now. In fact, that's all we're going to read the whole weekend. Notice what Jesus is saying. Okay, the model prayer, the structure, as you approach your heavenly Father, this should be the focus of your mind. Lord, hallowed be your name. And of course, name is synonymous throughout the Scripture as his character, his very being, who he is. Praise him for his very being. Hallowed be your name. And he says, your kingdom come and notice he says, your will, what you want accomplished, the tasks you have set before us, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't believe, again, that he's being just merely poetic or using rhetoric or oratory. I believe he has a very important point. He's saying, Lord, we want to see your kingdom here. So we ask that your will would be done here the same way that it's done there. Does that make sense? Okay. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we're going to honor and fulfill the prayer of Jesus on this earth, do his work, his way, the Lord's bidding, apparently it's incumbent upon us to understand how his work is done where? In heaven. Apparently heaven is the model of ministry for the accomplishment of God's will here on earth. 
that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. So tonight I want to begin with a study of heaven, a study of heaven, a message entitled The Ministry of Angels. How is the Lord's work done in heaven? If it's supposed to be our model of how work is done here, we need to understand how it is done there. What is God's will? How is it accomplished in heaven? So that will be the goal of our study tonight, is to study how the Lord's will is done in heaven so we can apply it to this earth. So turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 4. Now, there are many pictures of heaven in Scripture, but perhaps none suits our purpose, as does Revelation chapters 4 and 5, and we don't have time to do a complete study of this exhaustive uh, exegesis, but I want to give you the picture of what's happening. We're going to start with verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4. After these things I looked, this is the Apostle John writing from Patmos, and behold, a door standing open, where? In heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So notice that he's in vision, a door is open in heaven, and a voice says, Come up here, I will show you things. Which... Common sense says, if the Lord ever opens a door to heaven and says, come here, go. And John follows that command, yes, sir. And immediately, verse 2, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. He who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throat, in appearance like an emerald. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and around the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And just a, a little aside, you won't find the term Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation, but you do find seven spirits. This is a, a, a picture of the Holy Spirit in, a, in, in this language of apocrypha. But it goes on in verse 6. Before the throne was a, like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And it goes on to describe them. And notice what they sing in verse 8. They do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And this is a picture of heaven. You have the throne of God. Around it there are 24 other thrones. Surrounding the throne there are the four living creatures, and all of them are giving praise to God. So you have God the Father. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the 24 elders. You have the four living creatures. And in Revelation 5, Jesus Christ enters the room as the Lamb who was slain victorious over Satan. And, of course, that turns the entire courts of heaven surrounding him. And we go down to chapter 5, and let's go to verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and made a priest, a kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And oftentimes when we do a study of Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, we focus on... The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. We focus on the four living creatures. We focus on the 24 elders and have good discussions about their identity. And we kind of assume, well, that's the main point. But I'd like us to continue now to verse 11. Notice verse 11 of Revelation 5. There's another group represented that far outnumbers every other being that's been mentioned. 
Then I looked, verse 11, and I heard the voice of many, what? Angels. Around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. So, of course, there's the throne, the four living creatures, the 24 elders. But out there beyond, apparently there are many angels. And it doesn't leave us to guess, oh, does that mean several or a dozen or... No, 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 watch this now. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. Do we have any math majors here tonight? What's 10,000 times 10,000? A lot. <laughs> I hope finals are coming up just around the corner. <laughs> a lot. If I'm not mistaken, that's 100 million. 10,000 times 10,000. And that's not the end of it. And thousands of thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands and thousands out there beyond the central figures of the Godhead and the living creatures and the elders, there's this great sea, nearly a countless number of angels. So as we look at heaven, we realize, yes, there is a central throne room, and of course God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit operate from this command center of the universe. And they're the four living creatures, these angelic beings, and then there's the 24 elders, and each have their role, each have their place, and they're central to heaven, but beyond them, the vast majority of heaven's inhabitants are not the Godhead, are not the four living creatures, are not the 24 elders. They're these literally millions of angels. Heaven is chock full of these angels. Let's go to the book of Hebrews, just to the left, just a bit. Hebrews chapter 1. When it describes the ministry of Jesus, the author of Hebrew, I believe the apostle Paul, compares Christ's ministry as being to the angels and its superiority to the angels. Chapter 1, now notice verse 7 makes some interesting statements. We learn what an angel actually is. What's their purpose? What's their role? What's their mission? Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 7, he's quoting here, Psalm 104, by the way, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels, spirits, his ministers, a flame of fire. Notice the psalmist, and here the author of Hebrews invokes that argument, that line of reasoning, that God's angels are his ministers. There's an equivalence between an angel and a minister. In fact, that's made even more explicit in verse 14 of the same chapter, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. As he's looking at the role of angels, it says, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So in the courts of heaven, there are literally millions of angels who are ministers for God who are sent forth to minister the, for those who will inherit salvation. They are God's foot soldiers. They are where the rubber meets the road of the ministry of heaven. They are the executors of God's will for those who will be saved. They are his ministers, according to Scripture. The ministry of angels. Now, let's go back to the Old Testament, if you would. Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, we'll start with verse 10, and we're told that our messages need to be more in the line of Bible studies, and so we're going to be studying Scripture tonight to give us a solid framework of how ministry is accomplished in heaven and what we on earth can learn from that model. Genesis chapter 28, starting with verse 10. 
Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So get the picture in your mind. He lays down, he has the stone under his head as a pillow, and he goes to sleep after the sun has set. And during his sleep, he has this dream. A vision is given to him of a great ladder. And the only things we're told, there's a few things we're told about this ladder. First of all, it goes all the way down to the earth. It doesn't dangle from heaven some distance that you have to jump. It comes right down to the ground. But it also goes all the way up into heaven. So it connects the earth with heaven, all the way down and all the way up. And all along this ladder, it says that angels are ascending and descending. Ascending means to go up. Descending means to come down. So all along this ladder, there's transition of angels up and down. It's a very technical theological term, but they're going up and down the ladder all the time, going all the way down to earth and all the way up to heaven. That's the entirety of the dream. A big ladder that goes down to earth, all the way to heaven, with angels just going up and down on it. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that's the last reference to that ladder until we get to the New Testament. And we go to John chapter 1. Let's find out what that ladder means. Now, many of you understand what the ladder is, but we want to make sure that it's still in the Scriptures. John chapter 1. Here Jesus Christ is gathering his first disciples. And we'll start with verse 45. John chapter 1, starting with verse 45. It says here, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, you can tell that Philip is quite excited and Nathanael is rather unimpressed. And and what a brilliant retort by Philip. Philip said to him, come and see. No argumentation, no defensiveness, no... Just come and check it out for yourself. So, verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Now, he doesn't always have a big announcement like that, a pronouncement about his disciples. He confines them in there. But here, he knows the mindset of Nathaniel as he's coming. So he goes ahead and heads it off of the pass, nips it in the bud and says, Ah, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Behold, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree... I saw you. You remember earlier, the fig tree, you were studying, reading, praying. I wasn't there, but I saw you. I wish there were more people in the world like Nathaniel. Watch verse 49. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And you can almost imagine Jesus like, well, that was incredibly easy. That's fantastic, right? And look at Jesus, not sarcastic, but I would say humorous response to him. 
Jesus answered and said to him, because I said, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? That's all it took? Huh. You will see greater things than these. Like that fig tree thing is nothing. The blind are going to see, the lame are going to walk, you're going to see the dead come to life. And then he adds this. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon, and instead of saying a ladder, he says, the Son of Man, me. I am that thing from the dream. I am that ladder. But I want you to notice that the role of the angels is still central to that ladder. So the angels will be ascending and descending upon me. And Jesus would go through and explain, I am the door, I am the gate, I am the way. No man comes to the Father but by me. He repeatedly comes back to this theme. The only way to get from here to there is via me. But notice that conduit, that access to heaven, has angels ascending and descending upon it. Why would that be central in the Old Testament and the New Testament to the ministry of Christ as our intercessor between heaven and earth? He comes back to that again. Well, I believe it's because the angels play a more central role than often we give them credit. The angels are the foot soldiers and executors of God's will in the courts of heaven. Let's continue this theme. For instance, in Genesis chapter 19, we can think of different times that angels have been involved. Just a quick survey. Genesis chapter 19, when Sodom and Gomorrah were to be judged and destroyed, Genesis chapter 19 records that it was, and verse 1 says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And as you go on to read, it's the angels who were ministering to these who were trying to inherit salvation. They're the ones explaining what's going to happen. They're the ones urging. They're the ones pleading and literally pulling them out of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the angels who were doing the work of God at this time. He was their minister, his minister. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, another illustration of this. Daniel, in his older age, has to face with a has to deal with a religious persecution legislation foisted upon him by jealous cohorts. And in Daniel chapter 6, when Daniel has been thrown into the lion's den, you see here, well, we'll just start with verse 18. Now the king went into his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king also rose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions, and when he came to the den, he cried out a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Notice he clearly puts the responsibility on God. If Daniel's going to be saved, it's going to be God's doing it. He says, Daniel, has your God done this thing? Has God done it? Verse 21, then Daniel said, to the king, O king, live forever. My God, what does it say? Sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. Notice he puts the responsibility on God. God shut the lion's mouth, but what was this vehicle of ministry? 
the angels. God delegated authority. God sent an angel, and the angel shut the lion's mouth. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. Also, to you, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now, I love verse 23. I just throw this in here because it's just really cool. Now, the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den, which apparently is no violation of the law of the Medes and Persians. Apparently, there has never been an instance where they've ever had to deal with how do you come out of the lion's den. The law only said you had to go in. So I can imagine during his night of restlessness, he's like, okay, I'm going to give this thing one night, one day, just to see if it worked. And if not, I have fulfilled my obligation to the law, and he comes out. And of course, some other individuals took his place, but it's a different sermon. <laughs> but the Lord saved Daniel, but through his servants, the angels, his ministers. Psalm 91, a text we're very familiar with. I would imagine we're very familiar with. If not, I'd love to teach it to you tonight. It's beautiful. Psalm 91, starting with verse 10. The promise is given through the psalmist that, quote, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his what? angels charge over you. Notice he's going to give, who has the original charge is God, but he gives that charge over to his angels, right? For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Of course, Psalm 91 is a beautiful promise to us, but it was also used and tried to twist by the devil upon Jesus himself. Doesn't the scripture say? Trying to tempt him with presumption. But it's fascinating that God will keep charge of us through his angels. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus himself was a recipient of the ministry of angels. Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus had the spiritual equivalent of hand-to-hand -hand combat with the devil in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4. Again, we'll start with verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came, and what did they do? Ministered to him. Over and over, the scripture records that the angels are God's ministering spirits, ministering to those who will inherit salvation. Their role in heaven is to do the footwork, the rubber meets the road ministry on behalf of God. They are his ministers, and he sends them forth whenever there is need. Does that make sense so far? Now, all of that is stuff that you are likely familiar with. Now we're going to go a little bit deeper, and we're going to study this out a little bit more. Let me show you something I find fascinating. You may not find it interesting, but I really like it. Revelation chapter 14. I want to show you a comparison between two texts to illustrate what we've, the aforementioned point. Revelation chapter 14 after it describes in the first six verses, the uh, first five verses, the three angels' messengers, then it goes on to describe the three angels' messages. It concludes with a picture, a description of the harvest of the earth or the second coming of Jesus. 
And we start with verse 14, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and, one on, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. Of course, the Son of Man is repeatedly a moniker for whom? Jesus Christ, right? Having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand, what does he have in his hand? A sharp what? Sickle. Sickle is a harvest instrument for reaping. A sharp sickle. And verse 15, another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time of the harvest of the earth is ripe. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. Verse 16, so he who sat on the cloud, notice this language, he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. According to this passage, who holds the sickle and does the reaping at the second coming? Jesus. Is that clear? Okay. Now, let's compare that picture with the same event described by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 13. Notice this now, Matthew chapter 13. The same event, second coming of Jesus. This time, Jesus himself is giving the description. It's after a parable of the wheat and the tares. And we'll start with verse 36. Matthew chapter 13, we'll begin with verse 36, the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And I love that Jesus just does it point by point, symbol by symbol. This means this. Verse 37, he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is, here's our moniker again, the son of man. It's the same language as Revelation 14. The field is the world. The good seeds are the son of the kingdom, sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and notice this, and the reapers are the angels. So question, does Jesus reap the harvest of the earth? Yes or no? At this point, an illustration might be helpful. Several years ago, when I was living in Idaho, I built a house. Believe it or not, it was a different economic time back then, and you could do such a thing. I built a house. But you know what I didn't do the entire time? I didn't pick up one hammer, one nail, one saw, one level, nothing. But the house got built, and at the end of the day, I could say, I built the house. Now, how is that possible? Well, it was my choice to, to build the house. It was the location I chose. It was my money, you better believe it, that built the house. It was on my authority, but I didn't personally saw and hammer and drill and lay the foundation. No, 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 no. I hired a contractor, and believe me, they didn't do that either. Right? They hired other people, and those people hired other people and other people, so it was a whole delegated chain, a hierarchy. Again, there's our theological term. Right on down to the guys actually hammering the, you know. But at the end of the day, I look back on that experience and say, I built a house. 
You have to understand in a certain sense, it was my money, my place, my choice, my authority that got that done, but the workers were those sent out to do the particular task. Does that make sense? Okay. In the same way, Christ, and I'm going to expand this to the Godhead in general, and I'm going to say something that sounds a little bit weird. Most of the things, not everything, most of the things God does, God doesn't do personally. Do you understand what I'm saying? Most of the things God does, God doesn't do personally. Now, there are some things that God rolls up his sleeve and does himself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Clearly, he spoke them into existence. They just came to be. In fact, he, when he came, created man, he rolled up his own sleeves. He picked up the hammer and the nails and the saw and the level, and he formed us in his image and breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. That one he did. But not everything that occurs on earth is just God coming down and then going back up and coming. No, 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 no. He's the access. Christ is the ladder. But the workers are the angels. The workers are the angels. And let me illustrate this with a few points from Scripture that maybe this could be helpful about, okay? For instance, we talk about, by the way, this book is called The Word of what? The Word of God. Did God pen this book? No. He inspired the pen men. Yes? We do not hold to a verbal dictation that God took them and just became mechanically done. No, that's not how it worked. But let's look at a few strings of Scripture that prove this point. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Some of these we'll go through rather quickly, but I trust that you know your Scripture well enough that that won't be difficult. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, right there in the T section, of the New Testament. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy. I don't know why I said second. 1 Timothy. <laughs> no, I was right. Yeah, I, I inserted that for your laughter. I, I don't make mistakes. All right. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3. What does it say? Verse 16. All Scripture is given by what? Inspiration of whom? God. All Scripture, and some versions even say, is God what? Breathed. He breathes it out. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But now let's go over, looking at the same process of the inspiration of Scripture, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. Again, speaking of the inspiration of Scripture, verse 21. For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So it is the word of God, but he moved the authors to speak and to write. Okay? Very clearly. God still is, it's his word. No cl more clearly do we see this than Revelation chapter 1. Quickly go to there. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. We just finished up a series of meetings of 25. In fact, we just did 25 meetings in Fremont, Michigan. I'm here this weekend, and then the next week when we're going back to do 24, 25 more in Muskegon, Michigan. So the Lord is busy doing work, and, and, and I, would, I would elicit your prayers. Decisions are being made for Christ right now all around the world. So keep praying for those frontline ministers. But watch this, Revelation chapter 1. How does the Lord convey his messages? 
First of all, I bring up the evangelism thing because oftentimes people who are unfamiliar with the book of Revelation just think of it as the revelation of beasts and the revelation of horrors and the revelation of scary things or the Antichrist. But notice what the Bible says of itself. The revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. Now, how does it come about? Which God gave him to show his servants. Okay? So there's a revelation of Jesus Christ given to him that God gave him. Now, things which must shortly take place. And he sent it and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. And of course, John writes it down and sends it out to messengers who deliver it to the seven churches, and they record it for posterity. So it goes from God down to his angel, down to his messenger. The messenger writes it out to other messengers. There's a whole sequence. There's a chain of events. There's a hierarchy. But it's still, at the end of the day, after the end of the telephone game, it's still the Word of God. It's His authority, His command, others execute. Most of the things God does, He doesn't do personally. God delegates authority to His created beings. He works through His created beings. Now, let's go to Genesis chapter 4. As we peel back this theme even a little bit more deeply, Genesis chapter 4, one of the things, I'll be honest with you, that sometimes bugged me was we would show how Genesis 1 and 2 was the perfect environment, the perfect place, no sin, and because of that perfection, that still untainted purity of Edenic innocence, that God in His glory could come and condescend and meet with man, and they wouldn't be destroyed by His presence. So they could do things like walk in the cool of the day and talk face to face. But of course, with sin, Isaiah makes it patently clear that our sins have separated us from God and we can no longer have that dialogue. Then how is it? If that happened in Genesis 3, then we go to Genesis 4 and we find this. Genesis chapter 4. Of course, we'll start with verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the first fruit of the ground to the Lord. Verse 4, Abel also brought of the first fruit of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, notice verse 6. Your scripture says it too. So the Lord said to Cain. How is it that God and Cain are talking if that was severed in Genesis 3? Did God speak with an audible voice as like with the giving of the Ten Commandments or the baptism of Jesus? We could think that perhaps, but watch this now. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and it desires for you, its desires for you, but you should rule over it. God has this conversation with Cain. And again, he has a second dialogue with him, but I want to show you something from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 74. Notwithstanding Cain's disregard of the divine command, God did not leave him to himself, but he condescended to reason with the man who had shown himself so unreasonable. So again, he reasoned with him, but goes on to say, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? Then the next sentence, through an angel messenger, the divine warning was conveyed. If thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou dost not do well, sin lieth at the door. 
when it says the Lord spoke to him, it was the Lord's doing through his messenger, an angel. Let's look at another one, Genesis chapter 11, just to the right a few chapters. Genesis chapter 11. We'll start with verse 6. This is the Tower of Babel. We'll just start with verse 5. Genesis chapter 11, we'll begin with verse 5, the Tower of Babel. But the Lord came down. Notice the onus is on the Lord. Responsibility is his. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down. Very clear. We are going down. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language. According to this text, who is going down to confuse their language? Us, the Godhead, right? We're going to go down and put an end to this thing. Let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse verse 8, so the Lord scattered them abroad across the face of of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Story of Redemption, page 73, commenting on this experience. Speaking of these builders of Babel, they exalted themselves against God, but he would not permit them to complete their work. They had built their tower to a lofty height when the Lord sent two angels to confound them in their work. Men had been appointed for the purpose of receiving word from workmen at the top of the tower, calling for material for their work, which the first would communicate to the second and he to the third until the word reached those on the ground. As the word was passing from one to another in its descent, the angels confounded their language. And when the word reached the workmen upon the ground, material was called for which had not been required. So they called for a hammer, they got a saw. They called for a level, they got a bag of dirt. You know, I don't know exactly what they got. But somehow, the angels were the ones to step in, the footmen, the ones right on the ground, as this message was passing, they were changing the language. They were fixing it. But the Scripture gives that responsibility solely on the Lord. And it is the Lord's work, but he works through those angels who are his ministers. Genesis chapter 12. Let's go one over page to the right. Just, we could just go all through the Bible, and you'll see example after example of this. Genesis chapter 12. This is the story of the Exodus, the night of the Passover. Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to go to verse 12. Therefore it will happen when the Egyptians see you, they will say this, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 12. (laughs) It's a fine chapter, Genesis chapter 12, but just not for our purposes tonight. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12. For I will pass, notice this, the Lord is speaking, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Just in case you're confused about who's speaking. He said, I'm going to do it. I am the Lord. Now the blood will be a sign for you on those houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Lord puts it first person on himself. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 274. Each family, alone or in connection with the others, was to slay a lamb or a kid without blemish and with a bunch of hyssop sprinkle its blood on the two side posts and on the under door post of the house that the destroying angel coming at midnight 
might not enter that dwelling. Again, very clearly, the Lord's work being accomplished through angels. Now I want to show you one of the most poignant examples of this in Scripture. Please go to the book of Matthew, chapter 8. Matthew, chapter 8. We're going to start with verse 5. Matthew, chapter 8, starting with verse 5. Now... When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And notice what Jesus says very carefully in verse 7. And Jesus said to him, I will come and what? Heal him. I will come there. Willing to go. But notice the centurion's answer. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. A certain pastor who I heard, first heard this message preached in this way, and I convey it to you, expressed something that I had never consciously thought of, but when he said it, I realized I had thought the same way. That Christ's words had inherent magical properties. That he speaks something. That's, that's a demon coming out or something. Whatever. Okay. But that his word itself, the, 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 I don't know, the syllables, the consonants, the, the, the enunciation, the the power of them, <sighs> healing virtue would leave. And Jesus said, look, I'm willing to come there. I'll do it in person. I'll just lay my hands on, cure this disease. I'll be willing to do it right now. And notice the centurion halts him. He says, no, 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 please, I'm not worthy for you to come in my house. You just speak the word and it'll be accomplished. Did he have in mind what I had had in mind about the Word of God? No. How do we know? Because he explains what he means by you speak the Word. What does he mean by that? Now, Matthew chapter 8, again verse 8, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. And he explains why, verse 9. For I am a man under, what's that word? Authority. I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. He's like, I'm part of a chain of command. I have a boss, and he tells me things, and trust me, I don't do the things either. I have them do it. Right? Now, at the end of the battle, you know, the president wins the war. What trench was he in? You know? The glory goes to him. It was his authority, his idea, his, his push, his responsibility, and his glory at the end. But the centurion says, look, look, I understand the position you're in. You're going to come all the way to my house. This is far below your pay grade. And I'm not worthy to have you in my house. He says, but I understand the position you're in. 
You speak the word and it'll get done, because I understand what it's like. I'm a man under authority and I have soldiers under me. And he continues to explain. For I have soldiers under me, verse 9, and I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Watch Jesus' response now. Verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he, what's the word? Marveled. Now, oftentimes we see people marveling or astonished at the words of Jesus, but not often do we see Jesus astonished at the words of people. But whatever this man said struck home. And you can see Jesus like, wow. You get it. Huh. Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to those who follow. So he turned not just to him. He turns around. He's like, guys, guys, listen, listen, listen. Listen to what he just said. And I can imagine, sanctified imagination. He's like, say it again. Say what you said again. Say, 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 right? I'm a man of authority. I send people out. They do my command. Listen to what he said. And he said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. This man wasn't even an Israelite, but he got it. And watch this. After he says, And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But notice verse 13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way as you have believed. Just the thing you thought was right, that belief that you have, spot on. Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Contextually, according to Jesus, why was the servant healed that hour? Because Jesus' word has inherent magic properties? No, because he has people under him who obey his authority. And he says, go, and they go. He says, heal, and they're healed. Now, you might say, Pastor, that's taking liberties with Scripture. Let me show you some inspired commentary on this encounter. Desire of Ages, page 316. Here, paraphrasing and expounding on the, the mindset of the centurion, Mrs. White writes, As I represent the power of Rome and my soldiers recognize my authority as supreme, so dost thou represent the power of the infinite God, and all created things obey thy word. Thou canst command the disease to depart, and it shall obey thee. Thou canst summon thy heavenly messengers, and they shall impart healing virtue. Speak but the word, and my servant shall be healed. And tying it nicely to our opening latter theme, we see in Desire of Ages 143 the following statement. If you have your little app or something, you can look it up to make sure it's really there. Desire of Ages 143. The angels of God are ever passing from earth to heaven and from heaven to earth. Watch this now. The miracles of Christ 
got to be listening. The miracles of Christ for the afflicted and suffering were wrought by the power of God through the ministration of the angels. And it is through Christ, by the ministration of his heavenly messengers, that every blessing comes from God to us. Every blessing we get from God is God's blessing to us through the ministration, through the ministry of angels. By the way, she uses that same sentence where she talks about the miracles of Christ for the afflicted and suffering were wrought by the power of God through the ministry, ministration of the angels. She had used that sentence twice previously, but each of those previous times she had added one word at the very beginning. By the way, those other references, Review and Herald, January 21, 1873, and 2SP, Spirit of Prophecy, page 67. Identical sentences, but it adds this one word at the beginning. All. All the miracles of Christ for the afflicted and suffering were wrought by the power of God through the ministration of the angels. Friends, I want to paint this picture for you that most of the things that God does, God doesn't do personally. He does by proxy. He delegates authority. He commands his created beings to do, and they execute his will. So we go back to that beginning prayer of Jesus. What did Jesus mean when he says, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I've come to believe more and more fully that he's not speaking just with oratory beauty and smooth words for the sake of hearing but he actually meant something. This is not a preamble to the good stuff, right? We often say, oh, our Father is trying to how it be the name that will be done. Forgive us our sin, and we get into that. All, as though it's just some decorative introductory language. Is it possible that Jesus literally meant what he said? Father, this is the ultimate goal, that your kingdom would come here and that your will be, be done here in the same way it's done in heaven. The rest of this weekend, we're going to be developing what that means for us here and now in the close of Earth's history. Is it possible that we're waiting for God to do a work while he's waiting for us to be the workmen? Let me close with this statement. Desire of Ages, page 297. with almost impatient eagerness. Now, that's an interesting phrase. With almost impatient. Angels don't sin. They're not impatient. They're long-suffering. They're, they take their time. But they're this close to impatience, right? With almost impatient eagerness. 
the angels wait for our cooperation. For man must be the channel to communicate with man. And when we give ourselves to Christ in wholehearted devotion, angels rejoice that they may speak through our voices to reveal God's love. I want to start this weekend off with this challenge. Is it possible that God has a work to finish on this earth and we assemble week after week or night after night in prayer and we're asking the Lord, Lord, do a great work. We're waiting to see it happen. And his response is, I want to do a great work. I'm waiting for workers. Friends, I believe that the Lord has raised up the Seventh-day Adventist Church with a message for this time unparalleled in Earth's history. We have the three angels' messages, but my question is, are we willing to be the three angels' messengers? The messages have been there. We're not waiting for a message. What we need is messengers. We go back up, how is the Lord's work done in heaven? It's not personally by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit every time, or by the four living creatures of the 24 elders. It's those tens of thousands and thousands of multiplied thousands of angels. They're going up and down the ladder. They minister, and they're eager to work here. They're ministering spirits sent to minister those who will inherit salvation. And this is the only place in the universe where people are waiting to inherit salvation. And they're saying, we would love to be in your place. We're so eager, almost impatiently eager to work through you. If angels could switch places with anybody, it'd be with us. Because this is where the help is needed. And this is what they live to do. Oh, I want to go work for the lost. I want to go save a soul. I want to go proclaim the truth. We have a message to get out. Let me speak. But they're hold back, and God's like, no, 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 we need to delegate authority. Man will speak to man. You can work through them, but we need a willing vessel. Friends, the message is ready, but we're looking for messengers. I'm not going to be making an appeal tonight, but my aim is to plant a seed, an idea of how God's work is accomplished in heaven so that we can start thinking, how can we, through his spirit, harmonize with that work here on earth? So I want you to be thinking, if God wants his work done in heaven, am I being an angel here on earth? Am I willing to go when he says go? Am I willing to obey when he says do this? Am I willing to preach when he says preach or give a Bible study or seek the lost like the angels are impatiently eager to do? Am I willing to be an angel or am I just waiting for someone else to work? The crux of the whole thing. In the church, there's going to be two groups, the watchers and the workers. God's looking for workers. And it's my prayer that this generation will rise up and be the voice of God in this dark place. Has tonight's presentation made sense? Was it clear? Praise God. 
We're going to close with a word of prayer, but I want you to be ruminating on these ideas as we go in tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for creating us at all. You certainly didn't have to do that. And Lord, you didn't have to send Jesus, but you did. The Bible tells us over and over that you that God so loved that he gave. Love gives, love gives. And Lord, we want to be a people who reflect your character to the world. So Lord, help us to give. Help us to be your ministering spirits, your angel messengers in this time. Lord, you've given us a message. Now raise up within us the desire to be your messengers. Help us to not settle for being watchers, but being workers for you. Lord, teach us how heaven works and let heaven be seen here on this earth through us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.